What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. Well, well, would you look at that? The Deep Dark Web Part 2 is coming directly after the Deep Dark Web Part 1. Why was that so hard to say? The Deep Dark Web Part 2. Love that for us. So I really hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode, the Deep Dark Web Part 1. That one was so much fun to do. And honestly, we barely scraped the surface of the dark web. And so I'm definitely planning to have Pablo back on at some point so that we can do some more of that and just to have him back on in general like it doesn't have to always be for him to allow me to use his computer to go on the dark web <laughs> so i would love to have him on um that was so much fun also i was listening back and we said that we've been friends for 10 years it's definitely been 12 years because we're going to be 24 this year i think that math is right <laughs> um but we're not Ugh, ruby um yeah i guess We'll have sounds of Ruby walking around in the background of this now that we're out in the living room. Oh, I don't think I told you guys that yet. So I'm out recording in the living room today because I've got lots of fun things planned for us. I'm not going to say all of them yet, but some of the fun things does include guests. So I'll be having more guests on. Um, The past two guests that I had were Pablo and Amanda, and I had them, you know, just hunched over in my bedroom closet with me for the acoustics and I'm like this can't always be the case like I'm gonna have some people in the room that want to be comfortable and not sit on their ass for two hours and let it go numb while we record so I figured I'll try this episode out here in the living room and see how it goes um, with all the sounds that it picks up my fridge is literally always like screeching as if it's being murdered and my neighbors are loud as fuck but I'm gonna hopefully make this audio sound good and then going forward I can have guests sitting in my living room with me. I'm also planning to get another microphone because listening to Pablo and I trying to like hover over the microphone was just it was too much. It wasn't it's not it's not what I want it to be. So I think I'm going to get another microphone. I mean, that's why I bought this audio interface anyways, so I could have multiple microphones so I could have people on, which if you're local to the Charlotte area and you're a listener, let me know. I want to have you guys on. It's been so much fun. And I've had a lot of interaction from you guys saying that you wanted to be on and like coming to me with different ideas of things you want to talk about. And it's really fun when you guys are on with me. Um, I'm also going to start probably introducing some more ideas. I know Pablo suggested little segments and stuff. I think in the last episode, I asked you guys to send in I like I guess stories or experiences that you'd had with the dark web. I didn't get any. <laughs> But like, I want to start interacting with you guys more. I want to take little breaks in between these and um, just have fun interactions. So um, be on the lookouts for some more stuff like that. Yeah, I can't believe we're already on episode nine. I mean, time flies when you're having fun. Am I right? But yeah, so today we're going to talk about the deep dark web part two. And we are going to be talking about Big data, data analysis, algorithms, data breaches, hacktivism, government intervention. I 
was originally going to do three episodes of this. And I guess we'll see like how far I get into all of this. Doing some of this research, I found other things that I wanted to talk about. And so I think it'll probably just be part one and part two. And then I'll have like the more specific episodes like the Silk Road. I'll have an episode planned for Anonymous, things like that. Let's just go ahead and dive in. I've done enough talking. Y'all are probably like, shut up. Let's get into it. So first, I want to remind everybody that we need to keep ourselves safe on the dark web. I'm not going on the dark web today, but I did put the site that Pablo and I were looking at last time in the show notes of part one. If you want to go on the dark web, just practice some of these safety tips. I got this from thedarkweb.com and it'll all be in the show notes, baby. You know how I do. So first... Download and install a VPN service so you can get free ones, but um, paid ones, I guess, give you a stronger level of protection. Also, download the Tor bundle using Firefox, as Pablo said. Set Tor's security level to maximum. Turn off and tape your camera and microphones. Shut down all other apps that are running on your computer. Only have your VPN and your Tor browser open. And then disable your Flash players and your JavaScript. Avoid clicking directly on links that are posted in chat rooms, which I think we did in the last episode. So do as I say, not as we do. And then always research on the clearnet any links or websites or companies, etc. before just going to any site. Like kind of what Pablo and I did where we were like, oh, this looks like a legit website and it was fake as fuck. So definitely make sure you do that. Just a simple Google search, like a Reddit thread will help you figure that out. what the actual fuck i just went through like two pages of my notes and realized i wasn't recording (laughs) it's okay it's okay (laughs) we'll start fresh basically the whole reason that people like to use the dark net is because of that inherent privacy and inability to be tracked down whether it be people looking at your search history or people actually finding out your physical location and like doxing you swatting you, all those lovely fucking things that are just absolutely cruel. Yeah, that's why people like to use the dark web. And also they don't want like big companies tracking them, whatever. So, you know, what do we as like humans decide we're going to do? We decide we're going to figure out how to creep on people's activities on the dark web. That's what we do. But first, we're going to dive straight into what is big data and data analysis and how is it being used with regard to the dark web. I'm sorry. I'm going to dork out a little bit here. I like this kind of stuff. It's interesting to me, okay? It's my podcast. So according to David Taylor for Guru99, big data is a term used to describe a collection of data that is huge in size and yet growing exponentially with time. So big data analytics examples include things like stock exchanges, social media sites, jet engines, which I'm going to like show my ass real quick and say, I don't know what the hell that means. I probably could have looked it up, should have looked it up. But like, what does that mean? Jet engines? I, I don't know. As like a way to visualize this, over 500 terabytes of new data gets ingested into the databases of Facebook every day. And the New York Stock Exchange is an example of big data that generates about one terabyte of new trade data per day. With regard to big data, you can have both structured and unstructured data. And so structured data is going to be more like clicks, like how many clicks did somebody do on this website or how many likes does this photo get? Where unstructured data is more along the lines of like, when I go and comment on somebody's picture and I just put like a bunch of text strings together, that's a little bit harder to analyze than something that's just like 
yes or no, they clicked it or they didn't. Data analysis is a process of inspecting, cleansing, transforming, and modeling data with the goal of discovering useful information, informing conclusions, and supporting decision-making. According to dataflock.com, the use of data analysis on the dark web is called dark analysis, which I love. I think that's such a cool band name. I feel like recently I've been hearing so many cool things that sound like band names. Like I was writing a poem the other day. What did I say? What did I write? Adolescent misfortunes. I wrote that and I was like, oh my God. Like immediately I was like, rar XD. Like I literally (laughs) was like thrown back into like 14 year old me's body. Like that sounds like the coolest fucking band name I would have listened to for sure. All right. So we're going to get into some of the technical stuff now. A 2021 article titled, and this is about to be a mouthful. So just bear with me. The article is titled, Dark Net Traffic, Big Data Analysis, and Network Management for Real-Time Automating of the Malicious Intent Detection Process by a Weight Agnostic Neural Networks Framework. Holy fucking shit. Okay, I gotta catch my breath there. I was going to include the names of the authors, and I, I will include it in the show notes. I just, their names are all, like, very much very Greek names, and I just don't want to say them wrong. That will be available in the show notes. It was published by the Multidisciplinary Digital Publishing Institute, or MDPI, which is a publishing company that publishes scientific journals. Okay, I said published like 10 times. This article discusses how the adoption of cloud technology and the internet of things combined with the increasing volume of intelligent hackers attacking companies of all sizes has made keeping secure networks incredibly difficult to maintain. And so as a result, network traffic analysis products have emerged as a response to this need for putting an end to the relentless attacking. And so this next piece, I paraphrased from them, but I also put quotes around it because it was pretty close. I just took out some of the extra stuff to get to the point, because you guys know how scientific journals are, like back when you had to research stuff in high school and college, and they always have like 10 authors, and the <laughs> the bulk of the article is just their citations page at the end. I wanted to get to the point. Using a weight agnostic neural networks architecture, these tools are effective and accurate computational intelligent forensics tools for network traffic analysis the demystification of malware traffic and encrypted traffic in real time. So this shit is really cool to me because, I mean, I work for a large company. We take cybersecurity and data privacy very, very seriously. We have, you know, entire teams that are built for it. We all have to go through trainings. We have these like lunch and learns, um, like information security lunch and learns and stuff like that periodically, pretty much once a month at least. It's obviously a thing. It's obviously a threat. But, you know, I guess I never really stepped back and thought about all the different companies that have entire teams that this is what they handle every single day. I have a statistic. I think in the last episode, I was like, I have this statistic from IBM and I didn't put it in that episode. I I put it in the notes for this episode. So we'll get to it. But it talks about like how much money some of these hacker groups get from big companies. It's crazy. It's really super interesting, my fucking catchphrase. It's super interesting to me to think about all, like, because it's silent crime and there's so many silent criminals. Some of these people that are attacking all these companies, they probably work for these companies and they go home and they do this kind of stuff. Like, I probably know people that do this kind of stuff and you just don't know it. Like, they're not talking about it, obviously, because they're smart. It's just crazy that it's that big of an issue that we're turning to 
learning the trends and patterns of the dark web in order to prevent people from doing this. And if so many people are doing this, then like, why aren't, why, why don't I know anybody who's doing it? <laughs> if you're doing it and we're friends, can you show me? I just want to see it. But I don't want to get in trouble. So actually, I take that back. I don't want to go to jail. Because it's illegal to, you know, hack people. <laughs> but yeah, so I just think that's really interesting to think about um, because it's happening every single day, all the time. Every big company is just waiting for like their next headline of like, Target had a data breach. Everyone has a data breach now. It's like everyone had a sex tape. Everyone had a trial, like Anna Delvey said. Everyone has a fucking data breach now. Anyways, these scientists, they tested a couple of different algorithms, and I'm going to define algorithm. That is a process or set of rules to be followed in calculations or other problem-solving operations, especially by a computer. So that's the definition, I guess. And so these scientists, they tested a couple of different algorithms that had different biases, and they determined a way to identify deviations in the normal operation of network traffic. They basically are looking for things, they're looking for outliers. They're trying to detect insidious behavior, behavior often the result of cyber attacks. And so I was thinking about how I could explain this, and I thought of it, I feel like a visual might work, and maybe I'm wrong, but this is how I like interpreted it after reading this article. So think of like, two people and they're like connected to a heart rate machine. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. And you know, there's the one person and their heart rate is just steadily up, down, up, down, up, down, looks the same the whole way. And then there's like the other person, they have a heart condition. So like maybe their heart is moving like not <laughs> at like a normal pace. It's going up really high and going down really high. And it looks a little scattered, whereas the regular heartbeat you would expect to see a pretty consistent pattern. So these algorithms are looking for things They're like, okay, we know what the consistent pattern is supposed to look like. And we're programmed to know that this particular activity doesn't look like that. So we're going to investigate. And so that's what the algorithms do. And there's multiple layers. There's different algorithms. They're looking for different things. I think I saw that there's like learning algorithms and random sampling al algorithms. They all have different purposes. And so there's a combination of them that work together to make this product work. Sorry, I just had to check and make sure that I'm actually recording since I just spent like 20 minutes talking to myself <laughs> and not recording it. So some of these algorithms were able to detect attacks in real time, while others were able to detect the aftermath of an attack, which might like not sound so good. Um, but they typically are able to detect the attacks on day zero so they can get ahead of any attacks, vulnerabilities, whatever, pretty quickly. So it's a combination of algorithms that give the desired results. And this would take out the human element of finding attacks once they've happened and would also stop some before they even occur. So it's like a win-win. It helps companies. The whole point of this is, you know, not every company is a large, like, Fortune 500 company that has entire teams of people built out to address these kinds of issues. And so I think the purpose of finding these algorithms and creating these tools to analyze the network activity is to be able to provide this kind of in like a QuickBooks little package um, for companies to utilize so that they don't get hacked. So I think we already have technology that's doing similar stuff like this to some extent, but what makes this technology different is that the architecture is resistant to changes in node inputs, providing defense against adversarial attacks and damaged networks. So according to dxshub.org, 
Many companies are already using data analysis of the dark web to discover things about their customers that traditional data cannot reveal. I'm going to be honest with you guys, I don't know what the fuck that means. I saw a few different blogs and stuff where like people were saying that companies are doing this, but I don't I don't know what in con in what context that is referencing. So the only thing that I can really think of is maybe these companies are able to determine what types of activity is occurring on their networks, kind of like how those algorithms were able to say, oh, that's normal activity, but that activity looks different. And then isolating that activity that appears to be coming from a different source, aside from someone just using the clear net to get on there. And then maybe seeing what these people with the different activity types are doing. I don't know. I don't, I mean, there's got to be a good explanation, maybe. But also, I think people like to scare each other on the internet and be like, oh my god, the dark net has been infiltrated, which like, yeah, it kind of has been. But I don't think it's, I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert, but I don't think that it's as serious as it seems. And most of the people that were saying that companies are tracking your data on the dark web, it was like a blog where it had like quite a few typos and stuff. So I was like, uh, but you know, grassroots baby, maybe they know something we don't. Okay, I've taken off my headphones and it feels really weird. I feel really naked, but like, I feel like sometimes when I wear my headphones for too long, my ears start to hurt. So I took it off. I don't think it's going to really make a difference. So I wanted to look into this more. I wanted to say, you know, why are people saying that companies are using your dark web activities now and tracking it? Well, according to logoff.com, Facebook actually has a .onion address on Tor, and there's also like Twitter, Reddit, whatever, and Pablo showed me YouTube. But I thought it was interesting that Facebook actually had a .onion address because you can still go on the dark web and access the clear net through the dark web. So I could go to facebook.com on the dark web, but Facebook has its own .onion address. So I thought that was interesting. It looks like the Facebook link allows you to access regular Facebook, but through Tor protocol. So I guess you go through the facebook.onion, whatever, and it just redirects you to like regular Facebook. I mean, that's some serious status updating you must be doing. I mean, I mean, come on, like, what are you doing on Facebook that you need to be protected from? Like, it's it's fucking Facebook. This brings me back to like the data tracking and those blogs. Facebook is already the world's creepiest and most public social media website. And like now it's on the dark web. Hmm. And we're supposed to think that they're not tracking data. Hmm. Like, I don't know. There's not a ton of stuff about it out there, but we already know that Facebook is doing its damn thing. So I don't think it's too far-fetched to believe that they have figured out a way to track what we're doing on the dark web. I'm buying into it. (laughs) Also, 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 (laughs) okay, I'm going crazy. Also, I have this fun fact that I don't really know where to put it in this episode. So I'm just going to put it right here because we're talking about social media, but it's totally out of pocket. so random. But according to payments.com, Instagram has a pretty large market for human bones. Um, I, I found this when I was researching for the last episode, like different things that you can buy on the dark web, but it just kind of got lost in the shuffle of everything that was happening. So I wanted to bring it up again. Obviously, you can buy human bones and all sorts of things on the dark web like we talked about. You can also buy them on the clearnet and it's you can buy human remains on a legal market. It's very expensive and you know there's processes that go into it and people donate their bodies for these purposes. 
A high-quality human skull goes for about $20,000. You can get this for much cheaper on the dark net. But, like, just remember, you are likely paying for unethically sourced human bones when you buy them on the dark net. And that has, there's so many possibilities to what that can fucking mean. But I just, I don't know, I thought that was interesting. I was like, I guess there's, like, an underground market of fucking bones on the internet. Ruby, stop. She's sitting right next to me and just going to town licking herself. Hold on, I'm going to move her. Okay, I put the headphones back on because I would have probably heard Ruby licking herself if I had been wearing my headphones, so they're back on. Being in the living room has me so out of my element. I'm literally just used to sitting in my closet like a little fucking like computer goblin hunched over and recording all this for you guys, so it feels weird to be like sitting at my couch with the coffee table and everything in front of me. Okay, but anyways, so Mandy has a necklace made of real human teeth, and it's not just like a couple of teeth. It's like it could probably, it's probably enough to fill a whole mouth, and it was, you know, ethically sourced, whatever. She probably found it on Instagram or Etsy. It's interesting to think that there's (laughs) probably an even deeper rabbit hole of bones on the internet that, like, because I, you know, you've seen the ones that are like a cat skull that somebody, you know, cleaned up and made art out of, stuff like that. That's cool. But I haven't seen a human skull on Instagram, so I'll let you know if I do. If y'all have seen one, let me know because I'm curious. But yeah, so apparently, supposedly, allegedly, companies are now able to analyze non-indexed content, which is the dark web. So Pablo kind of explained it to us in the last episode. The reason that we can use Google and Bing to search things and get results is because most things on the clear net are indexed, but not on the dark net. And so that's why in the last episode we used a website or an index list that Pablo had found to do our navigating. It's in the show notes. I think I mentioned already. If you want to go take a look at it, definitely do. Just make sure you use those dark web tips that I gave at the beginning. And hopefully the link still works because... Apparently, one of the reasons links die so quickly is because the anonymous nature of the Tor network makes them extremely vulnerable to DDoS attacks. And yeah, I learned. I'm going to say DDoS now. People just make new URLs to avoid getting shut down. I was reading this blog that someone wrote about the the nature, that's not the word I'm looking for, the cadence of how it goes. I don't know. Marketplaces. For example, maybe one marketplace will have drugs, guns, and fake documents. And then they shut down that domain and they open up three more and they're all individually ones for guns, ones for drugs, and ones for fake documents. And then they might only have like a certain website up for a certain amount of time. For example, those scamming websites that are up there, they might have it up, get one person that they scam, and then immediately shut it down. Um, So they're constantly looking for different ways to shut down and start back up their websites so that they don't get shut down when they're not prepared for it because you know they could lose lots of money if their website gets shut down and they have a bunch of bitcoin in their virtual wallet that they can't get so hopefully that link works for you guys so after all this you know me telling you the tor browser gives you so much privacy but We've figured out how to analyze your activity on the dark web. You might be wondering, like, what what's the point? And, you know, just because the Tor browser offers you privacy and the ability to research on the web without being tracked, you can't 100% guarantee that. You could argue that the ClearNet is just as dangerous, and to an extent it can be. I think definitely back in the day, the early days of the internet, it probably was a lot more dangerous. I, I just always think of that first episode of Degrassi where Emma is, they weren't, they just fucking 
they started that show balls to the wall. Like Emma in the very first episode of Degrassi the Next Gen is talking to some guy in a chat room and then she goes and meets up with him in a hotel room and he like locks her in there. It's crazy. So I think now we know like don't go in chat rooms and stuff. I think this dichotomy of the dark web being both like an internet refuge, this place to remain anonymous and revel in your own privacy, while simultaneously forcing users to shut down all apps, disable functions, tape up their mics and cameras. It's really paradoxical, and it's really super interesting. (laughs) Let's switch gears a little bit, and we're going to start talking about data breaches and data leaks. And before I started this episode, I could have sworn to you that I had at least one or two different data breaches in the list of episode topics that I have But I checked and I don't, and I don't know how that happens. So I'm going to like mention some today. I might do some episodes on some of them, but I just thought that was weird. So, because I think this kind of stuff is interesting, like all the blackmail and the personal information, it's kind of like desensitized me in a way. I don't want to say that. And then somebody like swats me or whatever. But at this point, it's like, I can try to hide my shit all I want, but people are going to find it. What is a data breach? A data breach is an incident where information is stolen or taken from a system without the knowledge or authorization of the system's owner, according to trendmicro.com. So there are multiple ways that a data breach can occur, and some of the most common methods are like insider leaks, payment card fraud. So payment card fraud, I want to talk about a little bit. So um, do you guys remember a couple of years ago, I think it was like 2015 when this was a big deal i remember seeing it on the news when people started carrying around the radio frequency id machines and they would go to like sporting events and just stand near people and it would pick up their card information so if i had my wallet in my pocket and my credit cards in there and i walked by someone with this machine their machine would just swipe my card essentially and get my card information so that's one way and that's crazy like that's really scary because you just don't No, there's no way to get around that. There's no protection to that. But yeah, so that's one of the main ones. Insider leaks, people with access privileges, they like steal the data or they give the data willingly to people or they are manipulated into it or someone takes advantage of them and they don't know it and the information gets leaked. Loss or theft, obviously. I don't have to explain that one to you guys. So there are three phases to a data breach, according to Trend Micro. The first being research. So this is when the attacker is trying to figure out, you know, are are there system vulnerabilities that I can tap into? Is there a weak link, um, an employee that is just, you know, they don't have their shit together and I can figure it out? Can I social engineer them like we talked about with Pablo and like get close to them and figure out their passwords? Can I fish them? Once they figure out how they're going to get in, they move on to the next phase, which is attack. So this, like I mentioned, is either network based or socially engineered. Network-based attacks exploit weaknesses in the infrastructure of the IT, and then the social engineer attacks are like phishing emails, blah, 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 blah. Then once they've attacked, they exfiltrate. So they're extracting the information from the system, going after everything that they want, whatever. They typically use this for blackmailing or cyber propaganda, which if you look at that word, type it out. It's so, it's one of those words that's like really satisfying to look at. It's like crunchy and it like scratches that itch in the back of my brain. And cyber propaganda can be broadly defined as the use of modern electronic means to manipulate an event or influence public perception toward a certain point of view. So like when people spread fake news or try to manipulate voting results, things like that. According to dsxhub.org, 
You can purchase login credentials for people's bank accounts, Netflix, Hulu, Facebook, Spotify, Uber, all of that on the dark web, and it's typically from these kinds of attacks. So now I have a fun list of entities who have reported data breaches. So between 2013 and 2014, Yahoo had... Yahoo? 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 (laughs) Yahoo! Exclamation point. Had 3 billion records stolen. In 2016, Adult Friend Finder had 412.2 million records stolen. And MySpace had 360 million records stolen. And between 2007 and 2013, like that's such a long time. Oh my God. Experian had 200 million records stolen. It's Experian too. And then in 2017, Equifax had 145.5 million records stolen. It's like, dude, the credit unions and LinkedIn had 165 million records stolen in 2012. Target, PlayStation, AOL, JP Morgan and Chase, the National Archive and Records Administration, Dropbox, Tumblr, and like that's just a handful. There are so many companies that have had this happen to them. I always get emails. Oh my god, I I just put two and two together. I always get emails from Experian, and they're like, "Do you want us to do a dark web scan to see if your information is out there?" I'm like, "You know what? Maybe, <laughs> maybe I do." But like, what am I supposed to do with that information? Just know it's there and just like think about it. I don't know if I need that confirmation because I already am like such an anxious person. I worry about so much. That's probably the last thing I need. So I want to talk a little bit about ransomware again. So according to CSO Online, ransomware as a service, which we discussed a little bit in part one, is a successful and lucrative business model. Sophisticated groups like Revil develop their own malware and distribute them through affiliates. And Revil is just an example I'm going to get into a little bit more. Tons of groups are doing this. The affiliates then distribute them on the dark web, stealing data and requiring a ransom. And here's my IBM quote that I've mentioned so many times. It's finally here. You ready? I don't think you're ready. Oh, I should do ASMR. Oh, I love that. Okay. IBM Security Force, for example, reported that 29% of its ransomware engagements in 2020 involved Revil. The criminal groups that developed the malware gets a cut of the affiliate's earnings, typically between 20% and 30%. IBM estimates that Revil's profits in the last year, 2020, were $81 million. So many companies just have to pay the money sometimes. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, earlier I was like, wow, it's so crazy that there's all these silent criminals. Well, fucking yeah. Like, (laughs) I don't blame them. I don't blame them. I always think of Penelope Garcia from Criminal Minds and how she was like a hacker. And then the FBI was like, hey, you need to fucking stop. And then you need to come work for us. If I ever got into like this kind of stuff, I would like to be like her. I told you we were going to talk about Revil. This is so, I hate it. So Revil stands for ransomware evil uh so i just i hate it it's so stupid so corny as if i can call anything corny i'm the corniest person on on this fucking planet but revil ransomware evil this was a russian-based group of cyber criminals that specialized in what is it oh that sounded awful i don't know i'll figure it out i'll get better at the asmr stuff ransomware attacks So this was so fucking recent. In January 2022, Russian authorities were able to detain suspected members of the group. I think it was like 14 or so people um, that they were able to get. And like, they're pretty sure that it's them. 
According to ZDNet.com, computer equipment has been seized along with cryptocurrency and crypto wallets, as well as over 426 million rubles, which is the Russian currency, 600,000 US dollars and 500,000 euros. It said 20 luxury cars bought with money obtained from ransomware attacks have also been seized. So I'm just imagining like all these little like mini Elon Musk wannabes in their Teslas sitting at home hacking people with their cryptocurrency and their NFTs. (laughs) I can't lie, though. I'll have what they're having, please. Just kidding. I'm not going to do anything illegal. Revil was taking on massive attacks, though. Like, they were making companies pay them, like, $11 million in Bitcoin at a time. They even hacked Apple, apparently, and stole upcoming product designs, so their operation was huge. So we'll see. Uh, Typically, whenever, like, they get busted, there's, like, one or two people that don't get caught up in all of the drama, and then they just kind of restart it. And it'll be, like, Revil 2, because they're so creative. But the ransomware stuff is pretty fucked up, because... These groups, they don't really give a fuck. Ooh, give a fuck. (laughs) They don't really give a fuck which companies they attack. And, like, I'm sure some of them do, like, how Pablo and I were in that chat room with people that were, like, hunting down pedophiles. Like, they're attacking people, but they're doing it justifiably. Some victims of ransomware include, like, hospitals and local energy suppliers, which is really fucked up. So that brings me to my next point. The Colonial Pipeline was hacked this year, or... In 2021, it's 2022 now as I speak. So, the Colonial Pipeline. The Colonial Pipeline is the largest fuel pipeline in the U.S., and back in the summer of 2021, hackers breached their system using a compromised password that was found in a darknet leak. So, I guess a set of leaked passwords on the darknet was found, and the password that was used to breach the system was found there. So, I don't know how that works, like how they're able to trace it back and say, oh, this was the login credentials that allowed this person to breach our system, but they were able to do that. But they don't know exactly how the credentials were leaked. So they figured out that it was on the dark net and they know whose login it was, but they're just not sure exactly who leaked it or if someone had gone into the system and obtained it or if it was socially engineered. Yeah, it was found. So according to Bloomberg, Hackers gained entry into the networks of Colonial Pipeline Company on April 29th through a virtual private network account, which allowed employees to remotely access the company's computer network. The VPN account, which has since been deactivated, didn't use multi-factor authentication, a basic cybersecurity tool allowing the hackers to breach Colonial's network using just a compromised username and password. So can you imagine being the person whose login information was used to hack into your job's information systems and subsequently create a huge gas shortage on the entire East Coast? The secondhand embarrassment I'm feeling from that is, it's too much. I would just, I would literally just fucking cease to exist. I would just be like, all right, this is the end of me. Put me down, please. (laughs) That, oh my God, I would, that's so much pressure. It wasn't until May 7th when the ransom note was found and Colonial Pipeline shut down the pipeline for the first time in its 57-year existence. So I think that they like got into the system on the 29th and then they sent the ransom. I think they downloaded everything that they needed and then they sent the ransom note. The company's system transports roughly 2.5 million barrels of fuel daily from the Gulf Coast to the eastern seaboard. Seaboard. Seymour. 
suddenly see more. And then service restarted on May 12th. Do I have any Little Shop of Horrors fans out there? If so, let me know. The Colonial Pipeline paid $4.4 million in ransom to Russian cyber group DarkSide so they wouldn't leak 100 gigabytes of data. Gigabytes? That's right, I think. What does GB stand for? Gigabyte. Literally, as I typed that, I was like, what if it says gravity bong? (laughs) So now we're going to switch gears again, and we're going to talk about government intervention on the dark web. So governments around the world have taken it into their own hands to take down all of the crime that's occurring on the dark net particularly the marketplaces. So here are some of the largest or just the most well-known marketplaces. A lot of them have been taken down before or there are variations of their original marketplace domains. We have Dream Market, Incognito Market, Alpha Bay Market, Vice City Market, Kilos, Joker Stash, and so many more. We're going to talk a little bit about freedom hosting today. I promise we'll get to the Silk Road. I'm really excited to do that one because it's going to be more about the Silk Road and also the storyline of the person who created it. So Freedom Hosting, all this information I'm about to say is from the record.media. Eric Aaron Marquise ran and operated the original Freedom Hosting service between 2008 and 2013. He's in his late 30s and he's from Dublin. Back in 2011, Anonymous drew a ton of attention to freedom hosting because I guess Anonymous had like hacked into their systems or just went on to freedom hosting and determined that it was a primary host of child porn. And they attempted to shut it down by sending various DDoS attacks. Apparently, there were more than 200 websites on the original freedom hosting hosting service dedicated to child pornography. And like, I was really grossed out when I was reading about this because it had the names of some of these sites and like, you know, we don't need to get into all that because that's fucking gross. But like, even just the names of the sites, I was like, ew, bro, that makes my skin crawl. Like, I, ew, I just got chills right now just thinking about it. Um, You can find it if you want. I hate that I'm even really talking about child porn on the podcast, but it's, it happens, so we need to address it. Freedom hosting only required a one-time $5 fee for people to host their websites, so obviously everyone and their mother is like, oh shit, let's go there. Apparently Marquise was hosting all of his, all of this on the servers of his like legitimate real-life business that he had called Host Ultra Limited, which is now defunct, shocker. Marquise attempted to evade persecution in Russia, but the FBI was able to track him down in July of 2013. A week later, in August, they took down the sites. So according to the record, Marquis fought his extradition for six years and even tried to obtain Russian citizenship, but he was brought back to the U.S. in March of 2019, and he pleaded guilty in February 2020. He must have felt the weight of the world (laughs) in February 2020. Shit was going down. On September 21st, 2021, Marquis was sentenced to 27 years in prison for hosting child sexual abuse material. I think the maximum was 30, which is not enough, in my opinion. This was the first case where the FBI utilized malware as part of the investigation, so that's pretty cool. After they seized the freedom hosting servers, once they had captured Marquis, so they captured him first, and then they obviously seized the servers, and then they took down the sites. Before they took the sites down, they deployed a JavaScript file to all sites hosted on the freedom hosting platform, and the script bypassed the IP, oh god, here we go, anonymization to collect the real IP addresses of the users that were accessing those child porn sites. So this set a precedent and it helped with future takedowns of the same nature, which is just really cool to me. A ton of copycats have popped up 
in place of Freedom Hosting, and there obviously was a Freedom Hosting 2. So let's get into that. Most of this information I'm about to mention about Freedom Hosting 2 is from TheVerge.com. Freedom Hosting 2 was a popular web host for more than 10,000 websites on the dark web. I don't know if that's a big number or not. It seemed like by the way people were writing about it, like that was a big deal. I think it's probably just because, you know, the nature of all the websites, they they go down, they come up, they go down, they come up. So to have 10,000 consistently on there was probably a big deal. But Freedom Hacking, Freedom Hacking, Freedom Hosting 2 was hacked by a group that claimed to be affiliated with Anonymous. Um, The group wanted a ransom for the compromised data, which to me doesn't sound like Anonymous. I mean, I don't know. I don't know a ton about Anonymous, so I'll find out more when I do that episode. But I feel like, you know, Anonymous was like, they're doing child porn, take them down. So I don't think that they would like request a ransom for child porn. You know what I mean? So the hackers claimed that more than half of the information that they had obtained from the web host was child porn. Oh, here we go again. Hence why they hacked in the first place. If you couldn't tell from the last episode, it seems like the number one thing that people are hunting for on the dark web is child porn. And if they're not looking for child porn, they're looking for those pedophiles and they're tormenting them, attacking them, making their lives living hell angels among us. Yeah, that doesn't that just doesn't make sense to me. Like, why are you going to hack in there to supposedly take down child porn and then ask for a ransom at just people? So the first freedom hosting takedown resulted in various child porn arrests. So yay, I'll clap to that one. A report on the Freedom Hosting 2 states that it made up roughly 20% of dark web sites. So that's a pretty big number. But also, I think we mentioned in the first episode, we can't really, I mean, all this is estimates. We can't really say like how big any of this stuff is. So that could be like, you know, not exactly correct. But yeah, so made up roughly 20% of dark websites, including various Bitcoin escrow services, Ponzi schemes, my favorite, and hacking forums, which doesn't surprise me at all. Unfortunately, the takedown of Freedom Hacking 2 resulted in the loss of many personal blogs, forums, and other forms of self-expression on the dark web. So it like, makes me sad because that's the whole purpose of it, is for people to be able to go on there and express themselves and do things how they want to do it without people hunting them down, which Sounds really fucking nice, to be completely honest. Now that I have tons of people looking at me on social media and the internet, it would be really nice to not. So I definitely get that. So it's really, it's sad. You know, you win some, you lose, you lose some. I definitely think like we have to get that shit taken down for sure. Like, but at the expense of people's artistic and self-expression, that sucks. It sucks all around, honestly. There was also a Freedom Hosting 3 and a Freedom Hosting Reloaded, and it looks like the Reloaded Freedom Hosting is still running today. So aside from that, the FBI is actually working on de-anonymizing the dark web in order to take down other illicit websites. And I don't know, like, to what extent that means, but that already is just like, ah. The IMF states, uh, which I believe is the International Monetary Fund, Um, They state that the FBI does this by establishing nodes in the network that expose the identities and locations of the website operators. So the FBI was actually able to take down the Silk Road 2.0 in 2014 doing this. And I literally remember hearing about this and thinking like how cool this story was. Not not that the FBI took it down. I mean, well, that is it is kind of cool that they were able to take it down. I remember learning about the Silk Road and thinking it was so cool. My brother and I, we swore that we could like 
go data mining for cryptocurrency. Like we were looking for Bitcoin. I remember when Bitcoin like blew up when we were like younger and we were like, oh my God, we're totally going to hop on this train and we're going to go on all these markets. Like we just thought we were so cool. But that's all I'm going to say about the Silk Road. So according to CSO Online, a team of cyber cops took down Alpha Bay, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. And apparently at the time, that was like the largest market for contraband on the dark web. I think Dream Market is another one that's like a super huge one right now. But, you know, they just they find other markets to sell on. The merchants just move. So, you know, you take one down, another one pops up, unfortunately. In 2018 and 2019, Interpol and the European European Union brought together 19 countries to focus on taking down domains on the dark web that were hosting illegal activities. They were able to take down two of the largest illicit websites on the dark web, including the Wall Street Market and the Valhalla Marketplace, also known as Silkity? Silkity? I think it's like, I'm assuming just because it has silk in it that it might somehow be like a weird variation of the Silk Road. The Wall Street Market was the second largest dark web market at the time, and they were taken down for their role in the distribution of illegal substances like cocaine, heroin, cannabis, and amphetamines, as well as stolen data, fake documents, and malicious software. So, you know, just all the basics. According to the Europol, the European Union Agency for Law Enforcement Cooperation, more than 63,000 sales were made on the marketplace with over 1 million customer accounts and more than 5,400 registered sellers. So, like, good for those sellers, I guess, like, in business. The marketplace officials were said to have received commission of anywhere from 2 to 6% of the sales value, depending on what it was. The Valhalla market was taken down for the same reasons, and its takedown resulted in a significant seizure of Bitcoin. I think that's, like, the big pain point of all of this is, like, people have their money sitting in these escrows and virtual wallets, and then the websites get taken down. So to lighten the mood from child porn, we're going to talk a little bit about human trafficking. That was a really bad joke. I'm sorry. It wasn't even a joke. It was just bad. So we mentioned briefly in part one, but I think it's important that we spend some more time on it because it's relevant and people need to be informed. So I talked a little bit about DARPA and then I just I said like one sentence and then I was like, yeet, let's go on the dark web and talk to strangers. So DARPA stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agencies. According to the Scientific American, DARPA scours the internet for advertisements used to lure victims into servitude and to promote sexual exploitation. It's so scary. Oh my god, it's so scary. I can't imagine like seeing an ad that was intended to lure me into being a sex slave or, you know, trafficked or whatever. I just want to know what what it looks like like what is the ad what what would make me click it and be like oh this seems safe and good and then i i mean i guess maybe it's targeted to people that are already looking for opportunities like maybe sex workers or different things where like they're looking for random odd jobs and stuff and they're willing to put themselves in situations that are a little bit riskier because they have to i guess willing's not the right word they're just in those situations because that's what they have to do and so then they wind up falling victim to these traps But I just really am curious. Maybe I'll try to see if I can find some pictures to post or something. Well, maybe I shouldn't post that. (laughs) I say things before I think about them sometimes. And this podcast has been a big test for me. (laughs) But I'm going to be myself. So according to the Scientific American, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime estimates estimates that there are about 2.5 million human trafficking victims worldwide at any given time. 
so fucking sad. I'm like, where are you guys? I will come get you. Don't worry, I'm coming. DARPA is working with 17 research teams to make Memex, which I'm not going to get into all this because this is, I mean, you guys thought I was speaking technical earlier. This is like super technical shit. Memex is a set of internet search tools that's supposed to aid in the mission against human trafficking. So basically, Memex is this super search tool that can find links between different pieces of data on the internet in a way that typical search engines can't. And this is kind of what's helping people search through the non-index information. Apparently, Memex can generate color-coded heat maps of different countries that locate where the most sex advertisements are being posted online at any given time. So I wrote that very vague. The most sex advertisements, the point was the specific types of ads that are meant to lure people in or offer those services, etc. The tricky part about catching these advertisements and websites is that they get taken down and rerouted often to avoid DDoS attacks. DARPA awarded Carnegie Mellon a $3.6 million contract to enhance one of the tools that makes up Memex, and it's called Traffic Jam. So they wanted to enhance Traffic Jam's capabilities to search and analyze on the dark web. And Carnegie Mellon researchers have also studied different ways to identify images with similar elements, such as furniture from the same hotel room that's present in multiple images. So if they have, I guess, photos of people being human trafficked or like, I guess, porn or something, they're in a place that has like, maybe there's one identifying characteristic, like a couch or something. They're able, this software is able to like, find different photos that have been imported to this system and that might not even be like maybe there's different jurisdictions that are researching it like maybe someone in California is researching it and they have this photo and then someone in like Boston is researching it and they have a photo and they wouldn't even know that the other investigation team has a similar photo they put it into this system and I guess it's supposed to find that correlation which is kind of a fucking huge deal like this is a crazy big deal and it doesn't have a ton of hype about it like I think the first article that I saw like the earliest one of all the sources that I was looking at was like 2015 and then I saw like from 2015 to 2017 there was some hype about it but mainly like nerd hype like it wasn't it didn't seem like it was big news but also I don't know what I was doing in 2015 and 2017 so like I was probably living under a rock you know destroying my frontal lobe then I think I saw an article like a MIT article that was from 2019 but aside from that, there it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of news coming from it. Maybe that's on purpose. Maybe there hasn't been a lot of progress. But I just, I was like, that's a big deal. Let's talk about that. According to MIT's Lincoln Laboratory, the algorithm works like this. So it's first fed data information from users on forum A. So like, I'm on a forum, a chat room, I have a username, and the investigators have exported all the data that they found on that chat room or forum. And so that's forum A. They feed that data into the Memex system, and that creates an authorship model. So this is like the baseline. And then information from forum B, so usernames, whatever, from the other forum, is then compared against forum A, and the algorithm does a basic search for things like slight changes in the spelling of usernames, and then it moves on to look for content similarities. So maybe I left a comment on a forum and I was like, LOLs, that's so funny, exclamation point, XD. And then on forum B, I was like, lols, 
you crack me up, rar XD. I don't know. That's like the most basic things I could say. Maybe I got on there and I was like, wow, skeptics, that's super interesting on forum A. And then on forum B, I was like, ooh, stay sus skeptics. So the system would be like, uh, this person has a similar username and they have like the same vernacular or whatever you want to call it. And so the system would pick up on that. And then it looks for network similarities. Um, it also looks for users that they interact with and topics that they discuss. So like if forum A and forum B are completely different, like maybe forum A is a cannibal chat room and forum B is a we're going to take down pedophiles chat room. Those are different topics. So maybe I wouldn't be in both, but apparently it seems like <laughs> based on my podcast, I would be. And I would be very, I would be a unique person that they'd be able to identify based on that. All of this combined produces a probability score of whether the two users are the same person in real life. And as of 2019, the reported matches are correct 95% of the time. So again, why aren't we talking about this? Like, that's crazy. So now I'm almost done. I just want to touch on hacktivism just a little bit. Um, This is one of the areas where I am going to do some more specific episodes. But hacktivism is the use of hacking as a form of civil disobedience to promote a political agenda or social change. And then ethical hacking is similar to hacktivism. I wanted to define it just so we're clear. Ethical hacking is the process of detecting vulnerabilities in an application, system, or infrastructure that an attacker can use to exploit the organization. So typically, hacktivists are doing this on their own accord, on their own time, and it's not necessarily legal, um, but they're doing it as like a protest. Whereas ethical hacking, like I could be hired, well, I wouldn't be because I don't know how to hack, but If I knew how to hack, I could be hired by a company to be an ethical hacker and I would just spend my time trying to hack into our system and find vulnerabilities that we need to patch up. So there's a slight difference. They're they're similar though. Some common and well-known hack, I guess common is not the right word. Some well-known hacktivism groups include WikiLeaks and Anonymous more recently. And then these are some older ones, Cult of the Dead Cow, which is totally getting its own episode for sure because like I went to look it up and immediately like the first google search I was like oh yeah I have to do an episode on this and then the legion of doom and this was a hacker group founded by the hacker Lex Luthor which badass fucking name and he founded it after a rift with his previous hacking group called the knights of shadow so I I am obsessed already legion of doom was active from the 1980s to the early 2000s although was most active from 1984 to 1991 and at the time was considered to be the most capable hacking group in the world and so i got that little blurb from wikipedia my brain is like what the fuck were they hacking in 1980 i get that we had computers for a while we talked about the timeline there's lots of different things that i guess existed but i'm like what Y'all were out here, like, fucking doing the damn thing. So, obviously, we all know, you know, World War Three is, like, on the brink. And I realize that I am in a position of privilege that I'm just sitting here recording my podcast right now. And I'm fucking lucky and blessed to be able to dive headfirst into this and just focus on this and hope for the best for now. But I did want to mention this, that apparently hacktivists have helped raise almost $4 million. Actually, I think I said it was almost five. It was 4.6, more than that, more than $4.6 million in cryptocurrency to help the Ukrainian government and their troops, which was cool. 
it wasn't something that I would have thought of, but I saw this article on Wired.com and they discuss how cryptocurrency has created a stronger means of mutual aid because crypto is censorship res- resistant, meaning that funds cannot be seized and accounts can't get shut down like PayPal or GoFundMe. And I'm not a crypto nerd. I actually do want to do an episode on it just because I, I want to know more about it. And I, I bet you guys do too. So when that time comes, I'll probably explain why it can't be seized or shut down. I think it has something to do with blockchain technology. If we went to college together, please don't look down on me. (laughs) I think we probably learned all this stuff, but you know, I got that degree, baby. I guess I should invest in crypto. I should probably jump on that bandwagon. Maybe I'll get an NFT. If I ever had the money to buy an NFT, I don't think I would. So that's basically it. That's like what I had to share with you guys today. In part one, we talked about how the original purpose of the dark web was to keep US information confidential, but then they decided to release it to to the public um, so people could utilize the internet in a safer way. And I saw this one article that was like saying that the intentions of the release to the public were not just to give people a safe way to access the internet, but to create a place where they figured that criminals would flock to, which I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that, but I'm saying that I wouldn't be surprised if that was why they released it to the public. Because, you know, if there's a private way to do criminal activities, why not do it that way? But then I feel like it also probably just made more criminals. Because as we talked about in the early 2000s, I think it was 2006, there was like an immediate boom of e-commerce of illegal contraband on the on the dark web and it had only been public since 2003 so it was like pretty fucking quick i don't know this was like way before social media was even a seedling in mark zuckerberg's mind i'm kidding i don't know if that's true but you know what i mean i mean like we had aol chat rooms and like myspace and shit but i mean who could have known that the internet artificial intelligence big data all that all the fun technical terms would be what they are to us today. I'm sure someone knew, but you know what I mean. Like in releasing the Tor browser to the public, the US government either basically fucked themselves because they just created more opportunities for criminals to do their thing, or like that was the whole point. It seems like most people, like myself included, view or did view the dark net as something to fear. I like I always grew up just being like, ooh, the dark web, what is that? Like it was so unknown to me and exciting to me as if only like the most illegal depraved things could happen there like that's what I thought I mean which yeah like I guess that could be the case but it's also just a tool for people to utilize who want to use the clear net and simultaneously avoid being data mined and I know we're all sick of our phones doing what we think without ever saying it out loud to anyone or searching it up so that brings me to another point we all I know everyone jokes that we all have like you know, we have like the little FBI agent in our phone or whatever. I I don't remember where I saw this, where someone was explaining the way the algorithms work in that sense and like why we get such specific ads where like we just have a thought and then we're like, oh, you know, I think I need toothpaste. And then we get an ad for the exact type of toothpaste or, you know, something even more specific. Everyone needs toothpaste. I think we've all had that one time where there was an ad for something that was so oddly specific. And you're like, there's no fucking way. Like, how does it know? The explanation was that, you know, we use our phones and we Google shit all day long. 
And then we scroll on social media and we might pause over an ad and stare at it for a little bit longer than the other ones. So maybe we're a little bit more interested in that one or we might interact with it. Or maybe in your notes app or in your camera roll. Hold the fuck up. Have you guys ever like gone into your camera roll and typed in, like the other day I typed in stairs on my phone for some reason. And all these pictures of like stairs popped up from my camera roll, like pictures where stairs were in the background. And I'm like, what the fuck? So it's like similar. This is the kind of that Memex technology where they're able to identify things, objects in photos. I guess it's that same sort of technology. But I've always thought that was so weird. Pretty much anything that you put into your phone is noted somehow. I don't know who's tracking. I don't know how that works, but somehow... Data is tracked. So if I'm texting Amanda and Pablo all the time, whoever is tracking is aware that I interact with those phones frequently. And so my IP address is interacting with their IP address and it sees our locations. It will see that we interact a lot with each other. So maybe I'll start getting ads for things that Amanda might like and Amanda might get ads for things that I might like and vice versa. And so It creates this super interconnected web of our preferences. So then it begs the question of like, oh, that super specific thing that I thought of and now I'm getting an ad for it. Am I just thinking of it because the algorithm, I'm seeing certain things on social media, I'm seeing certain ads, I'm seeing certain articles and it pushed me to have that thought of that thing that I just got the ad for? Yeah. I don't know. People have weird interests. They want to look up weird things on the internet without everyone and their mother finding out about it. So I guess while there is sinister stuff on the dark net, there's also sinister stuff on the clear net. And the dark net is just giving you more protection to some extent. I mean, you're definitely getting more protection. But I just always go back to that idea that like, if someone on the dark web is like, work in their magic to figure out your IP address and your location and to look at your what you're looking at on the internet, like, That's really scary. I know in the last episode, we saw like the scam websites where it was like scammers teaching you how to scam people. And then what they were really doing was just scamming you. I think there's a lot of people on the dark web that are doing that kind of thing where they're just taking advantage of people that are on the dark web that don't know how to protect themselves or don't know like what to look out for. My thought process is that if someone wanted to find you on the dark web, they will if they have the skills. It's the same on the regular internet too. But there's so many more people on the regular internet that it, it, I guess it just waters down the possibility of it happening to you. I, I do appreciate that, like, the governments are taking down the child porn and working on the human trafficking and all of that technology that they're coming up with is really, really cool. It's just such a fine line between, you know, giving people the privacy that they want and deserve. And then now we're talking about potentially tracking people's patterns on the dark web. There was one thing that I didn't talk about that I wrote in my notes and I just, all I wrote was red rooms. I didn't write anything else. And red rooms, basically, I just did like a quick Google search on it. And they're basically these rooms, it's live streamed murder. It's snuff, essentially. And you have to like pay to get into them. And, you know, a lot of them are scams. They're like, pay to get into this red room. And then you pay them and then you just get your money taken or like they hack you or something. But apparently they exist. And so I wanted to do some deep dives into that. But I just felt like there was a lot in this episode. So I might save that for another time or maybe I'll never do it. But I had never heard of Red Rooms until I started going into this. And it kind of reminded me of McKamey Manor, the McKamey Manor episode where he was like, oh, yeah, we get our shit live streamed and whatever. 
it wouldn't surprise me. So, I mean, there obviously is some sort of market for that out there. If there's child porn and human trafficking and drugs and fake documents and fucking malware, there's got to be murder and torture. And with that, (laughs) I think that's where I'm going to wrap up today. I hope I didn't scare you guys off. Thank you so much for listening. I love you all so much. You can follow the podcast at Profskep Podcast. That's at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And you can send me an email at professionalskepticismpodcast at gmail.com. So we'll be back next Wednesday. Stay sus, skeptics.